Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbors. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbors with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. 
is 0208-687-7878 and of course you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK um, so we're speaking about some very interesting uh, topics today um, we're going to be speaking about three main segments after the roundup of the news uh, the first segment is going to be in regards to should we have a four day week let us know what you think about that um, second topic uh, after the 8 o'clock news is going to be about how to protect your garden from the winter and last but not least we're going to be speaking about the benefits of migration uh, in particular to the UK population uh, so these are the three main segments for the day if you remember if you would like to get involved in any one of these discussions then please feel free to do so the number for you as always is 0208-687-7878 remember this is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved so remember pick up the phone and give us a call uh, if you would like to tweet us or leave your comments on our Instagram page then of course you can do that as well at Voice of Islam UK um, so, Osman, before uh, getting into these uh, main topics, of course, we'll be speaking about the roundup of the news as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, did did you follow uh, England's uh, first game yesterday? Yeah, I, I watched the highlights. Oh, uh, just the highlights? You, you yeah. don't watch the game? No, I, I was a bit busy. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so, so yeah, we'll, I think we'll speak a little bit about that uh, whilst we're doing the um, the 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 news roundup as well. But six two, uh, quite <laughs> uh, quite impressive. A good, uh, quite a good start for for, for start, the Lions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, what's the what's the weather looking like today? Weather is is uh, heavy showers today, uh, especially in the in the eastern and southern areas of the U- UK. Uh, it will turn drier in the afternoon with sunshine widely developing uh, but it will remain wet in the Scottish Isle throughout and uh, tonight will start dry and clear for most places but some showers will persist in the far north and southwest later a band of rain will move in from the southwest staying drier to the north and east Um, tomorrow on Wednesday the band of rain will spread north uh, reaching northern Scotland in the afternoon and leaving sunny spells and blustery showers behind. Windy, particularly in the southwest. And uh, throughout the rest of the week on Thursday, we'll, we will see a, a bright and dry start for most. But a band of blustery rain will move in from the west through the day, staying wi- windy. Overnight uh, and into Friday, it will turn drier. Uh, but a few showers will linger in the north and west, sunshine developing through Friday. More widely in the west, um, uh, Saturday will become overcast and wet across much of the UK. Another breezy day. Mm-hmm. That's it so far. Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, I mean it's not looking great, <coughs> but it's not too bad either, isn't it? But I mean, it is starting to, mm. to rain and stuff as well. So yeah, it's more on the negative side rather than the positive. 
Um, but yeah, let's get into uh, the headlines um, as we do have a lot to speak about today. Lions bare teeth in Starmer's migration policy. Um, pictures mm-hmm. of the England football team who beat Iran 6-2 in their opening game of the World Cup on Monday, uh, uh, yesterday, dominate the front pages, of course, as <coughs> you could imagine. The Sun features a full page of photo, uh, full page photo of 19-year-old wonder kid uh, Jude Bellingham, uh, who scored the first goal, and the paper says inspired England's best ever World Cup start. Yeah, amazing player Jude Bellingham, by the way, love him. Mm. The rest uh, result was. Uh, marred by FIFA's decision to ban players from wearing the One Love armband in support of LGBT rights, says the Mirror. England's Harry Kane was one of the several European team captains who announced ahead of the tournament that they plan to wear the bands. The paper says FIFA's ruling shows the truth, uh, shows the true face of the Qatar regime. Mm. The Metro draws a contrast between Kane's decision to respect FIFA's ruling and the courage of the Iranian team who declined to sing their own national anthem in solidarity with ongoing protests in their home country over human rights violations. The headline reads, Bravery of Lions. The EU officials have said that UK government is guilty of wishful thinking. If it hopes to secure better trading arrangements with Europe without adopting laws like freedom of movement, according to the I. It comes after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was forced to deny reports he was considering pursuing a Swiss-style deal with the bloc, uh, which would see the UK adopt some EU rules in return for closer ties. The Daily uh, the, the Telegraph sorry, says Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer will uh, use a speech to the Conf- uh, Confederation of <coughs> British Industry on Tuesday to call for Britain to end its economic dependence on immigration. The paper says the co- uh, comments will be seen as an attempt to quash any suggestion that Sir Keir would emulate uh, the looser immigration policy pursued by the last Labour government and convince voters that he is reconciled to Britain's future <coughs> outside the European Union. The Guardian reports that Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab is facing fresh questions over his behaviour during a pre- previous stint as Justice Secretary. It comes as Mr. Raab, who has uh, who has served in a number of cabinet roles, faces an independent investigation over two formal complaints of bullying made against him. He has denied the allegations. The Mail reports that MPs have, for the first time, been told they can host Christmas parties at taxpayers' expense. The paper says new rules uh, by the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority say MPs can claim for refreshments and even decorations, though forbid them from spending public money on alcohol. It says the rules have sparked outrage given the ongoing costs of living crisis. And tailor-made treatments could see the numbers of years people diagnosed, diagnosed with advanced cancers are expected to survive double within a decade, the Times report. The paper says the treatments aim to force cancers to go extinct by disrupting the ecosystem they rely on inside the body. Interesting. And the Mm -hmm. Financial Times reports that senior executives at media giant Disney led an uh, insurrection um, against chief executive Bob Shapek that led to him being uh, ousted 
and his uh, predecessor, <coughs> Bob Iger, being uh, reappointed to the role. The paper says Mr. Chapek lost the confidence of other senior executives during uh, a tumultuous 33-month tenure and the that confidence in Mr. Iger among uh, investors saw Disney shares rally by as much as 10% on Monday. Uh, so most of Tuesday's newspapers, as we've seen, have the same story. The first games of England and Wales World Cup uh, campaigns on the front front and back pages. <coughs> the Guardian says there was unfiltered enthusiasm amongst uh, fans uh, about Wales being back in the tournament finals for the first time in 64 years. Many of the papers declare the Welsh captain Gareth Bale a hero for scoring a late equaliser which clinched his side a one-all draw um, against the USA. The I calls England's opening game, which saw them beat Iran 6-2, a stellar start. The Daily Express, Gareth Southgate's men began the adventure in style, while the Daily Mail's Jane Fryer says the team just got better and better and better throughout the match. The Sun praises 19-year-old Jude Bellingham, who scored the opening goal, leading him a wonder, labelling him as a wonder kid. Uh, writing in the Daily Telegraph, former England uh, player Jamie uh, Carragher says the current team have demonstrated that they're a force to be reckoned with. Even the front page of the Financial Times features a photograph of England of the England team celebrating their victory. The Guardian's uh, single uh, uh, Sean Ingle writes that uh, while England impressed, he believes the match is more likely to be remembered for the first refusal of the Iranian team to sing their own national anthem. He describes the move as a gesture of solidarity with oppressed women and protesters back home. The Daily Mirror highlights how the England and Wales captains uh, were forced to abandon plans to wear rainbow armbands in support of LGBT rights after being told they risked receiving yellow cards. Offering his assessment, Patrick uh, Strudwick uh, writes in the eye, whoops, there go footballers' principles at the first hint of trouble. Uh, Patients diagnosed with advanced cancers could see the, the time they are expected to live double within a decade thanks to cutting-edge new treatments, according to the Times. Laying out its plans for the, fir- for the next five years, the Institute of Cancer Research says it's looking at new lines of attack to fight the disease. Um, so, of course, um, um, uh, as it is uh, evidently clear, the the... The, the 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 football team, the English football team, was definitely going to make um, all of the, uh, or at least most of the the front pages in today's papers. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, on top of that, there's there's some other quite interesting uh, uh, articles as well, isn't it? Like the like the in regards to the cancer and and other such things as well. The the MPs being able to to um, throw Christmas parties. Uh, on the taxpayers' expense yeah. as well. Uh, I mean, what what caught your eye uh, in 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 the front pages or even from within the articles? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was about uh, Iran not not uh, performing their national anthem on the um, on the on the start of their game. Mm. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, and I was wondering why. Um, but it, it says that they they did this out of support for 
anti-government movements in their own country. Um, apart from that, yeah, um, England's, as you said, England's England's mention in the papers uh, definitely was going to be there. It was a very good game as well. It was uh, just as they said at the end, it kept getting better and better. Yeah, <laughs> it kept getting easier and easier for them. Uh, and uh, all the players, uh, according to what I saw, was uh, they performed really very well. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, we we are going to be going to the first segment shortly now. Uh, just quickly before we do, uh, Group C and Group uh, Group D matches today. Um, Argentina is playing against Saudi Arabia at ten. Um, a match I'm sure many are are, are waiting for uh, in anticipation of uh, of Messi. <laughs> um, and uh, Group D has a, g- a game at one o'clock: Denmark versus uh, Tunisia. Group C again um, <coughs> at four o'clock: Mexico and Poland. And then uh, last but not least, at seven o'clock from Group D, France and Australia will be playing today as well. Um, so yeah, we'll be going straight into our first topic uh, now. Just a quick reminder for you the three topics that we're going to be speaking about today um, the first one is in regards to whether or not we should have a four day week the second segment <clears throat> is in regards to how we can protect our garden from the winter and last but not least there was a mention of this in the uh, the front pages today as well the benefit of migration to the UK population so getting straight into it really um, should we have a four day week Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call if you would like to let us know your answers um, uh, in regards to this or any one of the other discussions that we're going to be having then the Twitter and Instagram handles are at Voice of Islam UK. So employees at Unilever in New Zealand received their full pay, reported a 33% decrease in stress and saw a 34% decrease in uh, absenteeism. The business claimed that it was able to reduce tasks and process during the work week to give employees more time. Less emails uh, were used according to the employees and more effective online communication was adopted as well. So, um, of course, there was a case study, isn't it, Osman? If, if you can let our listeners uh, know a little bit about this, um, what what was the case study? And then we'll go through the uh, results as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this pilot program is a, is coordinated um, six month trial in Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific of a four day week with no loss in pay for employees. It runs alongside similar pilot schemes taking place in Ireland, the United States, Canada, Spain, and the UK. Throughout this pilot, you will have uh, unparalleled access to the expertise, tools, and resources you will need to run a smooth and successful trial. The company behind Dove Soap, um, Domestos Cleaning Products, and Magnum Ice Cream announced on Wednesday it would continue the trial in New Zealand and expand it to Australia for an, uh, an initial, initial 12 months. <clears throat> so, a short uh, timeline here from March to April 2022 um, rollout of information session on the pilot program then in June the preparation training and onboarding sessions with our support teams began um, in July established uh, they established baseline metrics for the research as- aspect 
of the pilot and get uh, trial ready. And on August 2022 to January 2023 inclusive, uh, this six month trial period um, started and uh, organizations who are interested in uh, considering a trialing or introducing the four day week, they you will have unparalleled access to the expertise, tools, and resources you will need to run a smooth and successful trial. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit biased as well. Um, not biased, I mean, uh, what you call it? It's, it's a bit uh, controlled. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you see such, such positive results, it does not mean that this will be the same case everywhere. Mm-hmm. It is likely that it will fail in some places or if, if they did the same experiment, on on a more uncontrolled, more more natural way, it's it is possible that the results would not be that uh, um, uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, um, the results from the New Zealand trial showed strong results against business targets, including revenue growth with the vast majority of staff reporting feeling engaged and uh, uh, absenteeism dropping thirty four percent. Individual well-being also improved with stress dropping 33%. Uh, Under the New Zealand trial, which ran from December 2020 to June 2022, 80 employees worked four days a week at 100% of their pay while committing 100% effort for this business. The company reported that there were strong results meeting business targets while absenteeism dropped 34% and the staff in the trial reported a 33 drop in stress and decrease in work-life conflict of 67%. This is, that's a, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, so, um, Sherilyn Eckford, a channel and category development manager based in Auckland, she said that he, she used her extra day to run errands and do pilot um, Pilates before the weekend. By getting the family admin done on a Friday, it fr- it frees up the weekend to spend quality time as a family. Fitting in something fun is important to me, she said in the statement issued by um, Unilever. Mm. So, I mean, we can see um, many benefits uh, from this so far, isn't it? And we'll, we'll try to speak about both sides and keep it impartial um, for the benefit of our listeners as well. So they, they themselves can decide whether or not they think this is a good uh, initiative or not mm-hmm. and we're going to be speaking to our first guest for the show we do have with us on the, on the line Charlotte Lockhart um, f- uh, who is a business advocate um, investor and philanthropist <coughs> uh, with more than 25 years experience in multiple industries locally and overseas as CEO for the four day week global campaign she works promoting internationally the uh, benefits of a productivity focused and reduced hour workplace through this she is on board of the newly created Wellbeing Research Center at Oxford University and the advisory board of the US campaign and the Ireland campaign for the four day week. Um, since a diagnosis with stage four breast cancer, Charlotte has become very focused on changing the way we work today to a better, more inclusive experience for everyone. Um, Charlotte, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for for being with us. Um, we're speaking about uh, obviously the the four day week, and the first question that we wanted to ask you was uh, uh, that we've already gone for, uh, down from six to five. Why go to four now? How does the four day wo- uh, week actually work? 
Well, my question to you is why not go down? Mm. <laughs> we have had, uh, tech, you know, we, we, have, we have worked consistently uh, a five-day work week for at least 75 years, but actually sort of, you know, it's been around for, for closer to 100. Yeah. So as we advance as humans, surely the important thing for us is to actually look at how we rebalance um, how we how we do things now. So I think that it is important having had all this technology, we're actually going to use it so we can spend more time with our families. So it uh, it, it, it it you know it now is now is what we're talking about. Now is it a four day week or is it some other form of a thirty two hour work week that remains to be seen and will be de- determined by by the way that companies. Uh, roll it out for themselves, and also, arguably, when you know, when governments start getting involved and actually decide to, to, to dictate to us how we will do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And uh, can I ask the, what what does your UK pilot program um, entail? So what we do is we encourage companies to run a six month pilot, and we. Uh, take them along a, a journey where they focus in on their productivity and increase their, their increase the way that they can uh, do what they do in less time, and then uh, their people can can have time off, whether that be a four day week or a 30, 32 hour work week, um, but also without the reduction in pay. Because of course, if you're keeping productivity at uh, a high level, why would you reduce pay? And so, yeah, people go on, go on a you know, six-month pilot. We have research that follows them. So we've got a research framework that, that you know, each of the companies join so that then they can see how well they've done and they can see how they compare to other companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any tips for those of our listeners who wish to make uh, the case to their employers regarding this? You need to make sure that you understand that your boss's job is to make money, and mm. so your job is to help him, help him or her do that. Um, and then, if you can help them make money and show them how you can do that by working less, then they will. You know, there should be no argument as to why they cut that they won't let you do it. However, it's just really important to you know for them to understand that. This is a partnership between uh, the bosses and their people in, in terms of how do we improve the company so we can all go home. So it, it's not a bottom-up process. It's, sorry, it's a bottom-up process, not something that they can design from the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And uh, you cut off a little bit uh, before. So I wanted to ask, how, how was your UK pilot program, how, how um, has this happened and was it so successful? The UK, it, it, yes, so, so it's happened. The UK pilot program has, is, is underway. It finishes at the end of this month, so there's just another few days to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the researchers are, are excited to, to get in all of the final interviews and, and get in all the final data and we'll be releasing that data in February. So it, it'll, be, it'll be very exciting. But early indications from the, the from the companies is that it's all been very successful and everyone, um, you know, many many companies have surprised themselves in terms of how successful it's been. Awesome, 
Awesome. Uh, thank you, uh, Charlotte, for, 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 for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight no, into, this, uh, uh, into this program, the four-day uh, week. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a Good. wonderful well, day. We look, well, yep, we look forward to talking to you when the research is out. <laughs> of course, of course, most certainly. Uh, thank you once right. again. No Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Zero to zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Charlotte Lockhart, uh, who is a business advocate, investor and philanthropist with more than 25 years experience in multiple industries locally and overseas. And she's the CEO for the four day week global campaign. Uh, and she works uh, for promoting internationally the benefits of a productivity focused and reduced hour workplace. Um, and she was sharing her thoughts uh, with us, of course, in regards to this. Um, we can see that when we reduce uh, stress and improve mental health, um, this, of course, makes uh, work more appealing and reduces boredom. Uh, it, it improves productivity as well. And as happiness is something that comes and goes with the ups and downs of life, the Holy Quran focuses on the importance of finding inner peace and tranquility. Um, for example, when we lose a loved one or, uh, or and sadness overtakes us, um, but but our hearts can still be at peace if we are firmly grounded in um, in faith. Um, a remembrance of Allah is the key to this, as stated within the Holy Quran. Surely, in Allah's remembrance, do the hearts find peace? And this is taken from chapter thirteen, verse twenty-nine. Something uh, or a verse which uh, many of our listeners will be well aware of. Um, and if you are feeling like you are uh, like uh, you do not belong anywhere then find comfort in your faith and, and and the community around it you can remember allah through many avenues and this can be through offering the prayers paying the zakat um uh, uh, even reading books to increase our own religious knowledge um even a quick visit to to the mosque can offer a sense of belonging as well a very easy fix to to try and be happy is to be positive if you wake up and look at everything with a negative outlook on the world, you will ultimately not feel great about your day either. However, if you look at life in a positive manner, you may be able to see the good things in life. And this is closely associated with the concept of shukr, which is gratefulness uh, within Islam, in which Allah the Almighty says that if you are grateful, I will surely bestow more favors on you. And this is taken from chapter 14, verse 8 of the Holy Quran. An immediate result of gratefulness is that we um, realize the enormity of God's blessings, no matter what the situation, and are saved from it taking things for granted and that's why the Holy Prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as well he said that in terms of uh, um, uh, worldly matters we should always look to those who have <coughs> less than us and uh, we should be grateful that we, we ha- ha- of all the bounties and all the blessings that God Almighty has uh, bestowed upon us and when it comes to matters of the faith of religion of piety and of righteousness then we should turn to and look towards those people People who have more than us, and in that way we'll be we will aspire to be to get even better as well. 
Um, we're going to be going to our next guest for the show, Afsal Rahman. Uh, Afsal is a policy officer at the TUC, Trade uh, Trades Union Congress, where he supports trade unions with his expertise on economics, uh, pay and working time as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Assalamualaikum, good morning. Uh, good morning and thank you for being with us. Um, employees may reap the benefits, but how does a four-day week affect employers? Thank you. Good question. Um, so, uh, a little bit of background on the four-day week um, first. So, uh, I, I work for the trade union movement and, tra- and the trade union movement has, over its history, campaigned for a long time to reduce working hours and we've... Um, succeeded in that in many ways so right at the beginning one of the big campaigns that we had over 100 years ago was to shorten the working day to eight hours so people had some time to rest and of course Mm -hmm. we fought for a weekend that was two two days long so this four-day week uh campaign feels uh like like it's the next step so you ask about employers um there are there are a number of benefits to employers the benefits to workers are obvious more rest time all of that uh, more more work life balance. Um, where employers take up um, a four day week with no loss in pay, um, what what tends to happen is that the absence rate of employees uh, goes down. So workers are able to manage uh, their health and their time off uh, in a way that means that the employer is paying for less sick days. Um, there is more. Uh, more in, uh, and there are and the research shows that uh, productivity increases or, as well or you know it either increases or it stays the same depending on the organization but that's what the broad uh, research shows and that's from trials of the four day week in Iceland there was a big one but there's currently the world's biggest one in the UK at the moment which is uh, not completed yet but the early results show that productivity uh, Im- remains the same or improves um, and that it doesn't cost employers any more, uh, but their workers are able to produce the same or more. Workers are workers take less time off. Workers are more committed to the organisation. And there's a thing about retention as well. You're more likely to stay um, once you get that work-life balance from your employer. Mm-hmm. And in uh, uh, back in 2019, the Labour Party included the work arrangement in its manifesto. Uh, can this be easily translated uh, into legislative change? Yes. Um, so the way that we won um, so so over the over the last um, 100, 150 years working time in the UK has halved um, 150 years ago when the trade union movement first started and when the TUC was set up we did about 60 hours of uh, work a week um, we now do about 30, just over 30 hours of work a week on average uh, so it's halved, um, and the way that was won um, was partly through, uh, you know, legislation, so working time rules, but it's also through um, uh, workers negotiating with their employers, saying this is what we want, this is what we'll work for, and workers uh, asserting their needs and power. Uh, so it will need to be both of that. But on the legislative side, um, it's not just about. A shorter working week. It's also about all forms of flexible working uh, and giving. Currently, workers have the right to request um, to request um, 
a flexible working arrangement from their employer. Uh, their employer can accept or reject it, but they can't punish you for asking, and that's the right that people have in the law. We can strengthen that. Uh, mm-hmm. We can make it so that the legislation says, uh, by default, if you ask for a flexible working arrangement, it has to be provided unless there is a written in legislation acceptable reason for rejecting it. So we can strengthen the law around that and we can include things like a four-day week or a shorter working week um, into into the things that people can request in legislation. So it's a mix of legislation and social change because it's not just legislation that has got us yeah. things like the weekend. It's you know, you expect it from an employer. Maybe you wouldn't work for an employer that didn't have the kind of working time that we expect that we are used to. So it's a mix, but we can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and uh, how can the system be implemented across different industries and sectors? Uh, I mean, if we were to see a two-tier uh, system, what would that actually look like? Yeah. So quite often people think, oh, this is you know, this is this is something that suits. You know, offices uh, on office workers, they can do their work in uh, in four days and then, you know, have Friday off. Um, And that is, you know, that is a that is a concern that comes up and again and again. Now, in the UK, we've got a trial going on. Three thousand workers are included in it. Mm Seventy employers um, included in it. And it's and it's and it's and it's a huge, huge trial with academics looking at the impact um, and there are organisations in there that are not the ones that you'd uh, expect. So, one that's been in the um, in the news a few times, um, you can look this one up, is a fish and chip shop in North Norfolk, um, and they have managed to do a shorter working week. They're not doing a, they're not they're not opening for four days and then closed for three days. What they're doing is rotating shifts, and people who work in uh, industries that need to be open longer, you know, might even need to be open all week, mm-hmm. um, will be familiar with, uh, you know, how do how does part-time work or how does shorter working hours work in those industries? And, you know, you rotate shifts, you uh, you plan it out, and you can have everybody doing, uh, we can have everybody having, you know, 30 hours uh, instead of 40 hours, um, and, you can, and you can plan the shifts around that and you can make sure people are paid, you know, enough to live on uh, just for their 30 hours and then that has the same sort of positive impact um, that, it, that it has for other industries and it's worth saying some of the industries that you think oh four day week might not work in there they're also mm. the industries with the most unsociable hours like people have to work late people have to work early you know pe- you know people pe- people know what it's like to to not have that uh, not have that like nine to five uh, um, sort of work that is very predictable and people know the impact that that has on their lives so mm. shortening the hours while giving people the same amount of pay moving some shifts around it, you can be creative about it and you can and you can implement it yeah awesome awesome most certainly you can um Afzal uh, Zakla thank you for for being with us for answering our questions and and sharing your 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 insight in regards to this uh, this topic thank you once again and we thank you very much thank you for day. having me awesome thank have you. a wonderful day bye thank you bye-bye Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Officer Rahman um, from uh, a, a policy officer at the TUC, the Trades Union Congress, where he supports trade unions uh, with his expertise on economics, pay, 
and working time uh, sharing his thoughts with us in in, in this regard um, as we can see the, the, there's a there's a lot of benefits uh, that we can see uh, see from a four-day week rather uh, than than a five and, and I'm sure many of our listeners um, in particular the uh, employees would uh, would uh, would want this isn't it so you can have extra yeah. an, an extra day uh, like from the example that you gave as well um, an extra day in which you can run all your house uh, errands um, all your groceries and and all of these things and uh, um, and then um, um, uh, you have the whole weekend to spend with the family. Um, and, and I think that, of course, is a very beneficial thing. Um, if the productivity is there and uh, the, the same amount of work is being done, and, and of course we can see that there is a... Um, a decrease uh, when it comes to stress levels and other such things as well. Um, the, the, there's there's so many benefits from this, um, and um, uh, uh, while speaking about spending time with family, of course, this is something which is essential um, for the moral yeah. uh, and spiritual upbringing mm-hmm. of our children, of our youth. Um, that if we do not spend time with them, then uh, of course the the negatives uh, are are there, isn't it? They're right before our very eyes. We can see um, the ills of uh, of that, and that's why it's so essential that we actually spend time with uh, with our children, with our family, so that uh, we can, as parents, guide them as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Especially nowadays, um, with all these social media, our families are already apart. Even if you're at home, you see the father has his own phone in his hand, the mother has her own phone in the hand, the children are in their rooms. So this is like in every household, no matter. Uh, so you have to actively, you know, put like some some kind of ban or limitations to your use. Otherwise, if you let it let it flow, and you say it'll be fine, it'll be fine, then then it won't work out. So in in this um, uh, regarding this as well that. People need uh, maybe an extra day to, you know, you have you have a much longer weekend in this sense. So yeah. you have three days off. Yeah. Uh, maybe easier to plan something to go somewhere, um, because usually people wait for longer holidays to go somewhere. But you can just do a short trip somewhere. Yeah. And and this will this will bring you together, especially uh, on the journey or when you're staying there. You have something to do. But otherwise, if you're just staying home, you you will have the same routine every day. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm gonna get up, you know, get on my phone or on the laptop, watch something, yeah, play something. And in this sense, this this could definitely help families. It could help the employees, and ultimately, in in return, it will help the employer because um, they will they will they will get what they want. Uh, one thing is money, obviously, but the yeah. other thing is the the product. Yeah, yeah. And most certainly, and and there there might be a feeling of speaking from the employer's uh, point of view. There might be a feeling of, uh, oh, why should we uh, give the same amount of pay if uh, the hours have been decreased? Um, but like you said, the the same amount of work is being done. Um, it's the the productivity is still there, um, and and because the work is being done in in a far better manner, uh, because everyone knows, oh, we have one less day um, uh, to do the work, uh, which actually means one extra day to spend with the family or to do whatever else you want to do. Um, yeah. So of course you 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 you're not going to be slacking whilst working, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. whereas uh, if you mm-hmm. had a full day a full week then uh, you might f- you might find uh, the employees um, 
slacking off a little bit maybe taking extra breaks um coffee yeah. breaks uh, tea breaks whatever um and 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 because of that the the productivity might not be there the the rate um or, or the work rate as well um but nonetheless the 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 pros and cons uh, of a four day working week a four day work week is relatively um a a new concept we have spoken about this in the past as well um and of course we're touching on it well we're speaking about it now as well uh brought uh, uh this brought about largely due to recent advancements in technology as our first guest mentioned as well however some companies are already trialing the idea with promising results for both employees and employers um <clears throat> increase uh, increased productivity uh, as uh, an in-depth examination of the relationship and productivity conducted by Sanford University revealed a clear correlation between the two factors overworked employees are actually less productive than employees uh, working on an average or normal working week like we just mentioned New Zealand based company uh, Perpetual Guardian conducted a trial study of a four-day work week not only did employees maintain the same productivity level but they also showed improvements in job satisfaction uh, teamwork work-life balance and company loyalty as well employees also experienced less stress um, with a decrease of 45% to 38%. An equal workplace uh, research on the gender pay gap from the Government Equalities uh, Office shows that roughly two million British people are not currently in employment due to childcare responsibilities and 89% of these people are women. A four-day work week would promote an equal workplace as employees would be able to spend more time with their families and better juggle and work commitments, um, better juggle care and work commitments, um, better employee engagement. So a four-day week can lead to happier and uh, more committed employees. Employees are less likely to be stressed or take sickly leave as they have plenty of time to rest and recover. As a result, they return to work feeling ready to take on new challenges. From 2015 to 2017, Sweden conducted a trial study into a shorter work week. Uh, nurses at a care home worked only six hours for, for five days a week. Results uh, were largely positive, with nurses logging less sick hours, reporting better health and mental well-being, um, and greater engagement as they arranged 85% more activities for patients in their care. Um, we'll be speaking about this uh, in a little bit more detail in just a short while. But before we do so, uh, we do have with us on the line our next guest for the show, Mariam Salman uh, from 4-Day Week. Mariam Salman is a campaign officer at the 4-Day Week campaign, which is the UK's national campaign for a 4-Day Working Week. They are independent. Uh, non-partisan and are campaigning across the UK for a four-day, 32-hour working week with no loss of pay for workers. assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, good morning. Lovely to be here with you today. And it's a pleasure to have you on with us. Thank you. Um, Mariam, we're speaking about the four-day week, of course, uh, and the, and just right off the bat, just getting into the, the first question, really. To what extent is there a better work-life uh, balanced, uh, balance during the four-day week? 
The nine-to-five, five-day working week is frankly outdated and no longer fit for purpose. We created this over 100 years ago for an entirely different society and a workforce, and it's it's definitely time for an update. Moving to a four-day week gives us the time to be able to live happier lives and more fulfilled lives. A four-day week means improvements in health and well-being and reduction in burnout. A four-day week gives us time to spend with families and loved ones. It helps us create stronger and more caring communities. And also, a four-day week helps us reduce gender inequality. Um, It allows men and women to both share responsibility for childcare and domestic duties, um, meaning that, you know, men can spend more time with their children, but it also meaning that, you know, women don't have to do all the domestic labor and caregiving responsibilities. So it's, it's, it's a win-win situation um, for everyone that has a four-day week. And, you know, it, it's just, it's life-changing for people who've transitioned from a five-day week or a four-day week, which we've, um, we've seen during, you know, um, the largest four-day week experiment in the UK so far. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, trials and real-world examples, they have shown that employers who have to who have moved to a four day a week increase productivity but is this really true um yeah absolutely i mean a four day week is a win win situation for both employees and workers um we'll get more detailed results um from the tra- trial in february but so far we've seen companies report that workers have been more motivated happier and eager to come to work Um, And a survey we did showed that the majority of companies um, had either increased productivity uh, or or productivity had stayed the same, but there were visible gains from from the four-day week in terms of employers feeling more motivated and eager to come to work. So, you know, regardless of that, it was genuinely, you know, a positive um, situation for them. And in fact, you know, over 80% of companies have said that they'd like to um, continue with the four-day week and over 80% of companies have said, have said that the four-day week is actually working really well for them. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's all fairly positive so far. And in fact, this you know, resonates with it, with the global trend as well. You know, Wherever we've seen a four-day week trial, the results have been positive. There's either been you know, increases in productivity or um, you know, increases in um, employee satisfaction and, and well-being um, and just and just, you know, I think most importantly, it means that people are happier and people have time to spend with their families and loved ones and pursue other passions outside of work. Yeah. And and, and that's essential, isn't it? Because uh, this is uh, the cycle of life. And obviously, we do have to work. And uh, when, when, we, when we go to work, being fulfilled and content uh, with what we're doing and how we're being treated, of course, uh, then we will work in a different manner. Um, if we go to work and we feel as if our the employer um, does not really care for us or is not looking after us, um, and the, we don't see the benefits, uh, 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 and of course uh, that will have an effect on 
on uh, well-being as well and mental health, like you mentioned as well. Um, and of course, that that it's it's a rather negative thing, isn't it? So it's it's definitely a good thing and a positive thing to see um, uh, uh, so many benefits in the thirty-two hour uh, working week with no loss of uh, of uh, of workers as well. Um, slightly different, but if we if we talk about a compressed working week um, in which employees simply work longer hours over four days and take the fifth day off. Um, what do you feel are maybe some uh, disadvantages uh, when it comes to this? I mean, a compressed um, week doesn't really solve the issue of yeah. overwork and burnout. And in fact, it doesn't really give us that much more time to you know, spend with loved ones and family and our communities in a more meaningful way because you're just so tired after it. Um, and and that's that's definitely no alternative to um, a four-day week with no loss of pay because you you don't see the benefits that you would see in a in a true four-day week, which is you know thirty hours with no loss of pay. Yeah, yeah, but there's also this this concept to you know uh, spread out the burden. So what about I'll, I'll ask the question the other way. What about if you decrease the hours and still keep it a five-day week? So instead of working <laughs> eight hours, let's say you work six hours. Actually, that works. That works quite well. And and I think it is we are campaigning for a four day week, but we're also campaigning for a 32 hour week. And sometimes people Mm. just, yeah, people also just work better if they are able to, you know, spread out um, work over five days instead of four days. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there should be like, you know, a level of autonomy in terms of how people work and how people you know, decide what hours they want to work and where they want to work. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, flexibility um, is key. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know, certainly. Um, and lastly there, Mariam, does a four-day week contribute to a reduced carbon footprint as well? It does, and it's, I mean, if you look at the, the figures, it's actually just quite incredible. So working one day less would reduce <coughs> the carbon emissions by up to... 127 million tons per year that's oh, the equivalent wow. of taking off all private cars off the road in the UK that's the equivalent <laughs> of of reducing the like pretending wow. that Switzerland doesn't exist yeah uh, which is incredible Awesome. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the the benefits are most definitely there when it comes to uh, uh, the mental uh, well-being of of the individuals, of the productivity rate uh, within the workplace, uh, the carbon footprint as well. I mean, there's there's so many uh, um, benefits that we can see. Like you mentioned, um, the five day week is, um, well, uh, uh, to quote you, it's outdated now uh, and it's time for us to to go to a four-day week and uh, let's let's see um, how long it takes for this to actually come into practice uh, within uh, at, at least the majority of uh, of the of, of workplaces over here in the UK as well. Uh, thank you, Mariam, uh, for for being with us for answering our questions, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank, thank you. You too. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Mariam Salman from Four Day Week. Uh, she's a campaign officer uh, over there at the Four Day Week campaign, uh, which is the UK's national campaign for a four-day working week, as the name suggests. Of course, they are independent, uh, non-partisan, and are campaigning across the UK for a four-day or thirty-two-hour working week with no loss of pay for. 
workers. Um, and that was a discussion that we just had. Um, uh, Usman, if we uh, look at this, um, how likely are we to see this spread uh, to to all industries? I mean, um, uh, two two of our guests mentioned, uh, including Mariam, our previous guest, uh, mentioned that this is an outdated um, system mm-hmm. that we have of a five day working week. Um, it's uh, it's over a hundred years old, uh, and it was according to the time uh, at, uh, at that time uh, when it was introduced. But now, uh, because of the advancements that we've seen in technology, um, uh, what do you feel? I mean, do you do you think we're likely to see this? Um, well, I've I'm I'm still in the middle because I think that they are being a bit too optimistic. Um, because if you look at jobs like teachers and uh, schools, mm-hmm. in that sense, um, because you you don't see the outcome immediately. I think the the six month trial in New Zealand as well. Yeah, y- you might see the the improvement in the employees, which is you know already very um, anticipated. Yeah, but what course. about the students? Yeah. Have the students really improved? That's also a big question, right? Yeah. Because the ultimate goal is not to give comfort to the to the teachers, it's to make sure our students learn as much as possible. Yeah. So that we need we need some time to um you know find uh, results about how how the students are improving. Mm. And in other um industries, let's say some industries make they would lose a lot of money in one day. Mm. And you know that day could cost them a lot of money so they they will not they will not compromise um so maybe um it won't give the the worker as much comfort yeah um compared to as much they're losing money so i think the, they have but, but to it's about it's about spreading it isn't it like for instance even in retail or whatever it's an example from one of our guests was that rather it wouldn't be that everyone takes the the friday off for mm-hmm. instance it would be shift work um, and so the that that for instance that fish and chip uh, shop that they mentioned up in yeah. north um, that would still be open for the same amount of hours. It's just that the the workers uh, would uh, work in shifts so that uh, it stays open for the whole day. Yeah, uh, but that also means you need more workers then. So that's more more. Um, I mean, uh, it, it depends. Yeah, yeah. For instance, like yeah. if if they can manage with the workers that they have, uh, then obviously that's a positive thing. But if you if you have to then employ more workers to 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 get the job done, then obviously mm-hmm. that's counterproductive, yeah, isn't so it? I think we're still um, in the middle. And you're right. People, uh, people, uh, employers, um, and the business owners wouldn't wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, that's the discussion uh, that we've had on this. Um, of course, with our guests as well. Um, after the eight o'clock news, we are going to be speaking about how we can protect our garden from the winter. Uh, of course, as that has begun now. Uh, don't go anywhere and join us after the news. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. I look always with wonder at this Arab prophet, whose name is Muhammad. Thousands of blessings and peace be upon him. How exalted his status was. One cannot perceive the ultimate limit of his station, and it is not within the scope of man to fully comprehend the depth and penetration of his ennobling qualities. Alas, due recognition has not been paid to his lofty rank. That unity which had disappeared from the world was restored by this same valiant champion. He loved God most intensely. 
so also his soul was being consumed in deep sympathy for mankind. That is why God, who was fully aware of the hidden excellencies of his heart, exalted him above all the prophets and all the people of the past and the future, and fulfilled his heart's desires in the span of his lifetime. عن عمرو بن شعيب رضي الله عنه عن أبيه عن جده قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله يحب أن يرى أثر نعمته على عبده. It is narrated by Hazrat Amr bin Shuhayb رضي الله عنه from his father, from his grandfather who reported, the Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم stated, indeed. Allah loves to see the results of his favors upon his servant. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Uh, welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samir and Usman. Um, and we are speaking uh, about how we can protect our garden from the winter. Um, so as, of course, winter grows closer, the, uh, this topic will explain different ways um, and methods in which we can protect our gardens from the weather from a winter in particular. So, um, uh, Usman, uh, when we talk uh, about uh, the impact that it has uh, our gardens, uh, uh, um, the, the weather has on our gardens, what, especially when it comes to winter, um, what do you think are maybe one or two of the, of the things which uh, which happen to our plants um, and to, to our garden as well? Yeah, usually winter is the season where the outdoor plants die out. <coughs> Not just the gardens, the whole, uh, like jungles, trees, you know, outside. Um, due to the extremely cold temperatures, this is because the plants easily get damaged by frost and therefore they require winter shelter, especially many small plants. Um, um, regarding this, Hazrat Anas bin Malik, um, may Allah be pleased with him, a companion of the Holy Prophet, he narrated that um, if a Muslim plants a tree or sows uh, seeds and then a bird or a person or an animal eats from it, it is regarded as a charitable gift for him. So, <clears throat> you know, even in the Islamic teachings, um, taking care of wildlife and uh, plants and uh, and, um, other um, all the creatures in the world we, we should take care of them need to make sure they um, they are in a good condition and uh, doing this will is uh, as I stated is, is a charitable gift is a sadaqah so this is a good deed um, but the question is how can we protect uh, them from the winter and there are several ways in which you can protect uh, your garden such as by leaving the fallen leaves for example <coughs> and watering the plants in fact there are many plants which may need to be brought inside for them to be sheltered thus it is vital to ensure that um, these are kept away from any heat many experts have suggested that 
The fallen leaves are actually great insulators for the plants as they act as a heat source and they will protect the soil from being frozen. Another way of protecting the plants in the winter is to brush any excess snow away from the plants to avoid them from drying out and thus dying out. Another idea is to continuously water the plants when required obviously. Experts have said that watering the plants when it's frosty can protect the plants from drying out or dying. However, do make sure that they are not covered or overwatered uh, or underwatered because either extreme is equally bad for the plants. And uh, plant protection is also an essential way to protect the plants. The best way to protect the plants is to cover the plants in the evening to enable them to remain heat, um, to retain heat during the night so they are protected. And making sure that these covers are removed during the day to allow the plants to get as much sunlight as they can during the day. Keeping in mind about the wildlife that may enter the gardens in the winters, such as hedgehogs and uh, the birds. Mm. Um, and of course, we can protect and shelter the plants in the winter by making sure they are kept covered uh, as well, like you mentioned, one of the main uh, things over there. Mm. Um, we'll be speaking a little bit about what Islam teaches us in this regard in just a short while. But before we do so, uh, we do have with us on the line our first guest for this segment, Professor Alistair Griffiths. Um, he leads the RHS uh, team uh, of scientists focused on sharing the most uh, current scientific knowledge and undertaking research to provide evidence-based solutions to address uh, horticultural challenges. Prior to the RHS, he had a major role in using uh, horticultural science to create the award-winning Eden Project, spending a decade there as a head scientist. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and thanks yeah thanks for inviting me. You're welcome and thank you for being with us. Um you are part of the uh, Royal Horticultural Society like we just mentioned. Could you explain to our listeners uh, what it is and w- uh, what they do as well please? Sure, it, it's one of the largest gardening charities in the world. It's a membership organization but it also helps gardeners throughout the UK to help in relation to just get joy out of gardening, garden uh, easier, um, but also linked to the health and the environmental benefits of that. We also have gardens and shores, and and this provides the funding alongside supporters for our vast community education and scientific work. And we work on science on climate adaptation, wildlife, pollinators, pests, um, and human health. Um, also looking at how <clears throat> we can garden in a changing climate. Uh, hello, sorry, are you still there with us? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, no, so it, it seemed as if uh, we just lost you there. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, awesome. And um, it, it, you, you mentioned that it's uh, to help um, other gardeners as well. Um, d- uh, if, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not be into gardening as much, of course, this segment is based on how we can protect our our gardens from the winter, our plants and other such things. Um, is, is anything that you'd like to share for for them to actually get into it how how can they introduce themselves into gardening sure i mean i i think some of the you know some of the key things that you can do is um for example growing strawberries 
um, mm-hmm. and starting next year around strawberries. So, and really easy because you you know you can have them in containers or other things, and they'll produce sort of you know fruits that you can eat and enjoy, or or grow crops that you know that um, <clears throat> for example the Malabar spinach, a very easy um, a very easy crop that produces um, salad salad leaves. Um, which is an annual that you can use. Growing sunflowers, so I think you know sunflowers having competitions, even even things like um, you know getting getting in the family and 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 growing crest seeds uh, and making little families with little hairdos of crest seed and stuff together because crest germinates really quickly. So starting really simple, little container maybe or a hanging basket with plants for pollinators, things like lavender in there and. Uh, and other plants that, that people can enjoy. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you tell us that what the biggest challenges uh, that plants face uh, during the winter? What what are those challenges? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm more recently, what what we're seeing is that it's this real combination of excessive wet rainfall, intense rain intensity, and then the colder wet weather uh, snaps. Although what we have been seeing is that actually it's been a lot milder. So in, in this part of the period, you, you're actually getting an extended season. So some people may even still be mowing their lawns uh, more if they've got a lawn um, or seeing roses um, still flowering. So um, I think it's it's those kind of aspects. But if you've got things like um, uh, tender plants and tree ferns, they're going to need to be protected from frost. Um, I think mentioned before, snow sitting on plants, misshapen. Uh, plants and also reduce the amount of photosynthesis which is what the plant does protects the sunshine the water and the nutrients to grow um, and, but also next year late frosts so what people what's tended to happen with the climate change stuff is that in the in the springtime we get this warm weather which then say for example Japanese maple versa in pots will will flush their first set of leaves and then what happens is basically uh, the frost comes in and it and it damages those leaves um, in the pots. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is 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 waterlogging, so you can have quite some um, intense weather linked to waterlogging, particularly if you're on um, soils that are clay, so quite cloggy, uh, cloggy soils. And one of the things we've got on our website is something called Men's Two Rains. And, and what that does is it gives you a whole bunch of advice on how you can um, make your garden resilient for climate. And, and that includes some of the, 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 the waterlogging aspects. So, for example, mulching, mulching your soil, choosing the right plant for the right place for the right purpose. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a free RHS tool called Plant Selector Tool online that gives information on plants for... Um, you know, you can basically what you can do is you can tick. I've got a clay soil. I don't want a plant that can be waterlogged. I don't want drought, and it'll pull up a whole bunch of plants that you could choose. Also, mm-hmm. looks at hardiness ratings. So tender. If a plant is tender, um, you can find out which plants in your garden are tender. And the other thing that we've got on the RHS uh, online free again is the RHS My Garden online, and this is a fabulous tool. Basically, you can go into your garden take pictures of your plants uh, mm-hmm. if you go on to the my garden bit take pictures of your plants it will add those plants to your your my garden and then what 
what we do is we link into our advisory service and and it gives you free advice on how to look after those plants month by month. It also adds to our science work so we get to understand what plants people are growing in their gardens and understand how we can also help people garden better um, to help with some of the, the, the bigger social and environmental challenges. Mm-hmm. So it's like a virtual garden game. Yeah, yeah, it's your it's your garden in many ways. You just say uh, you go around and take the pictures or add the names, and um, mm-hmm. uh, it, yeah, it, it, it sort of it gives you information on on you know perhaps this is a tender plant. Perhaps you might want to wrap it with straw or hessian or fleece, or this is the time of year to mulch over plants with straw as a mulch to protect some of those things. Um, one of the other things is if you've got pots. Um, is that you can um, buy little tiny pot feet or, uh, to be honest, I just use some bricks or small stones to lift the pot just slightly off the ground. Mm-hmm. And that and what that does is it, it protects it a little bit from ground frost. You can wrap the pot with bubble wrap because that protects the pot round, particularly some of the pots are not necessarily made for uh, frost and can crack. Um, and, I mean, if you don't have with your pots, you can... You might not have a greenhouse, but if you do have a greenhouse or a cold frame, which is a protected frame, you can put your pot plants in there. If you don't have that, what I do is, because I don't have that, I move my plants closer to the the nearest uh, sort of the wall of my house because the heat from the wall um, gives you an extra couple of degrees. But also, I have coving of my roof, so mm. I, I also have it under the roof so the wet weather doesn't doesn't link with that. And then, I, But, of course, I have to just keep a check on the watering for that um, because it might not get rain water. Yeah, that's smart. Um, uh, another question, um, is, is there a link between extreme weather and disease when it comes to plants? Um, yes, absolutely. When you get very wet environments, um, what tends to happen is that you get uh, increases in disease, particularly if you get a mixture of, and what we are seeing is milder weather alongside a lot of wet. You get that, you get that sort of um, ideal temperature for, for things that um, the, the disease is called, like mildews, uh, phytophthora, pythium, sort of the root-borne um diseases but again you know if if you choose that there are online you can look online and you can see that there are for example for honey fungus mm-hmm. we've done a lot of work on honey fungus one of the major diseases that we do find in in gardens and there are some plants that are honey fungus resistant and there are some things that you can do in relation to management of those what i'd suggest is that you do go out into the garden keep an eye out of any damaged or diseased uh, material and then remove that 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 carefully if you're using secateurs don't go from one plant to the next so you know you say go to one plant and remove the diseased plants um, i use um, use some kind of spray or disinfectant on your secateurs so you're not transferring the disease from one to the next similar bag bag the material that you're doing and then mm-hmm. um uh, it's okay to dispose it in the compost because the heat of the temperature of the composting over time will reduce the disease um, issues. But yeah, that's um, so. It, so it will do that. On the flip side, when you get a cold snap for pests perspective, what you tend to do is very much slow down if you take 
aphids, for example, green fly, black fly, and white fly, it will slow down their life cycle. And if you get a very cold snap, it will it will help to reduce the number of pests, which is also another challenge in relation to the fact that we're getting more milder. We'll still have cold sessions, but mm-hmm. what we're seeing is that pests from the south, um, you know, places like France and others, are moving upwards. Um, oh. And um, and so we're looking at, for example, glasshouse whitefly has been very, uh, it's been quite interesting this year in that we seem to have a lot more at the back end of this year. I mean, you, you can look outside now and see that there's still quite a lot of trees with quite a lot of leaves on. And again, that's linked to that milder, that milder weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and lastly, there for for those who are uh, keen gardeners, what what advice would you give to protect plants uh, during the winter? I mean, that is of course our our main thing. And have you you've mentioned things here and there from from the previous questions anyway. Um, but if you were to just uh, put them all in one place, um, what what would your answer to that be? I think it, it's all about choose right plant, right place, right purpose. And I think that free RHS plant selector tool allows you to do that. Choose plants that can tolerate both wet and dry, because in the in the summer we get an increasing dry period. Mm-hmm. So it's not just looking at the, the the seasons now; it's just in the winter. But if you choose something that tolerates wet, um, a good example of that is uh, tamarix. Mm-hmm. Uh, tamarix is very very good, beautiful uh, pink flowers. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think, you know, I've mentioned it, but identify your tender plants and you can look at that on the free RHS My Garden online and the Ident app. Um, seek those tender plants, wrap them. Some of the tender plants might need digging up, so things like dahlias. So you need to dig dig some of those up dahlias, get the root system, uh, cut the stems to the uh, to just about 10, 10 centimetres above uh, the root system, uh, knock off all the soil, put them in a in a tray, uh, put some uh, compost over them and store them in the garage or indoors um, and, and mulch over the plants uh, to protect those. Um, watering is, is good and also, you know, yeah, let nature do its course. So absolutely, you don't need to, if you've got um, trees or other things in your garden, let the leaves stay over there because they will create a bit like, you know, when you put a duvet over yourself it will create a little insulation space uh, for the plants underneath or or mulch um, to protect with straw um, yeah I think those are, uh, are some of the sort of um, key things oh and watch out in spring because uh, all those new flushes of leaves and other things mm-hmm. um, watch out for late frosts and make sure you move those plants that you care about um, closer to a wall or, or to wrap them in some form of hessian or fleece um, or, or straw. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Alistair Griffiths, for for being with us, answering our questions, and sharing your insight into this uh, this topic uh, of how we can protect our gardens. Uh, and I'm sure that many of our listeners would would have found that very beneficial. Uh, and I'm sure they can take those steps as well to to better protect their their own pots and plants and uh, and their gardens as a whole as well. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Yeah, thank you too, and I hope you and all the listeners do too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0208-687-7878. That was uh, Professor Alistair Griffiths, uh, who leads the RHS's team of scientists focused on sharing the most current scientific knowledge and undertaking research to provide evidence-based solutions to address horticultural cha- challenges. Prior to the RHS, uh, he had a major role in using horticultural science to create the award-winning Eden Project, spending a, um, a decade there as head scientist. Um, and with that, we're, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We do have with us on the line, uh, Dr. Debbie B- uh, Bartlett, who is a landscape architect and ecologist uh, currently working as Professor of uh, Environmental con- uh, um, co- uh, uh, Conservation at the University of Greenwich. Uh, she has wide-ranging research interests uh, based uh, on managing landscapes to increase resilience to climate and environmental change, uh, particularly heat stress as well. Um, assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome uh, to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. I'm very pleased to be here. And it's an honour to have you on with us. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bartlett, for for being here with us. Um, We're speaking about how we can protect our gardens uh, from the winter. Um, And the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what strategies can gardeners take to mitigate the effects of uh, extreme weather? Well, we have a problem in that extreme weather is very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. We, we, one minute we have a heat wave, the next minute we have floods. Yeah. It's, um, it is an ongoing problem and it's not likely to get any better. The secret really is in the soil. <clears throat> we need to have our soils in our gardens containing enough organic matter to be able to hold some water, but at the same time we need to have good enough drainage so that when we have very heavy rainfall, the water can go go somewhere mm-hmm. so um yes the soil is what i would say is the, is the key thing and to grow grow plants that are well suited to current conditions mm-hmm. even though we don't know quite what current conditions are going to be mm-hmm. uh, can you give an example of an important plant species in the uk that has suffered dramatically due to the, this this climate change? Well, I think the, the most important group of plants are trees. Trees are very, very long-lived. Um, they suffer in drought and when they can't get enough water. They suffer if they're waterlogged. So if we have very heavy rain and the rain can't go anywhere through the soil, um, it's almost as bad. The, the roots can't... Um, can't function properly and they have Mm -hmm. the additional problem of pests and diseases we have more um, novel pests and diseases um, coming in with changing climatic conditions probably everyone has heard of oak processionary moth possibly heard of ash dieback Mm -hmm. and these are things that are affecting um, trees very severely and of course because trees are such a really important part of our landscape as well as our gardens um, it's a very important effect we can't just replace mature trees instantly they have to um, take a long time to grow mm-hmm. yeah 
And uh, what uh, uh, benefits um, are, are there to growing different plants and crops uh, in our gardens? Are, are there scientific uh, benefits for, for us as well? Oh, definitely. <clears throat> I think um, if you look at agriculture, we now have in the UK, um, it's not uncommon to see fields of sunflowers, mm. which we would not have seen um, in the past. They would, we would have associated with them, them with the south of France. And equally, um, in the south of England, particularly on chalk slopes, we're seeing vineyards. And, you know, grapes are being grown here, mm-hmm. which just did not happen before. <clears throat> Interesting. I think people are looking at, um, you know, novel vegetables as well. Growing different different varieties that are more able to withstand drought, for example. Um, but then this summer was was really good. Anyone growing tomatoes would say, you know, great for for ripening tomatoes. But the previous summer, of course, was a disaster <clears throat> because mm-hmm. it was very very cloudy and not good. So the real problem we have is this unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. And most certainly, and 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 that's that's the problem here, in particular, isn't it? In England, where, like you mentioned, one one minute you have a heat wave, and the other it's uh, it's it's maybe snowing. Uh, so so yeah, it's uh, it's, it's <laughs> almost. <laughs> so so yeah it, it is rather difficult but but thank you for for, for your tips um and um are there any last pieces of advice that you like to give to someone um who may be very new to this or someone who wants to take on gardening but uh, but hasn't hasn't started yet um and maybe something that you like to share to 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 encourage them to do so well, I'd say two things. The first is going back to soil, and um, however small a garden you have, you can have a compost heap, and you can put, you know, your coffee grounds, your tea bags, as long as they're not plastic, you know, your vegetable peelings, um, and you can use use that, and um, you know, nature will produce a wonderful. Um, fertilizer effectively that -hmm. you can then add to your soil when it's rotted down um, and that will increase the water holding capacity and the other thing I would say is be careful about paving the more hard surfaces we have particularly in the towns um, the less places there is for water to go Mm -hmm. so when we have very heavy rainfall Mm -hmm. it's the hard surfaces that cause that flash flooding yeah. And there are lots of things you can do to um, to make a hard hard area to sit on, but still let the water go through. Paving blocks with holes in that um, vegetation can grow through. Yeah. So just think if you're thinking of you know paving your driveway or something like that. Think what's going to happen when we have really heavy rain? Where's the water going to go? Mm. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Debbie uh, Bartlett, for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions, sharing your, your tips and your insight into this topic. Um, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. Uh, that was um, Dr. Debbie Bartlett, uh, who is a landscape architect and ecologist, um, currently working as Professor of Environmental Conservation at the University of Greenwich. Uh, she has wide-ranging research interests based on managing landscapes to increase resilience to climate and environmental change, particularly heat stress as well. Um, we did speak with... Uh, um, Dr. Ross Cameron as well, uh, who is actually the Director of Research at the Department of Landscape Architecture, University of Sheffield. Um, Ross is interested in uh, understanding the benefits that uh, gardening can bring, as well as how gardens and plants will adapt to climate change. Um, and this is the conversation that we had with him. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Doctor. I'm fine. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, so first of all, we wanted to ask you, how do different seasons, in particular winter, affect plant life and growth? Yeah, an interesting question. So plants are, um, they grow through three different factors, temperature, day length, and the moisture availability in the soil. So obviously they grow quite fast in the spring and summer when it's warmer. And then in winter, they go dormant or woody plants go dormant. And that's because of large because of low temperatures. Um, so they're attuned to the climate and, and they grow when there's energy there, there's some life there, and then they go dormant when they don't need to um, photosynthesize in, in winter. Thank some you so plants, much. Yeah, so some plants need a cold winter to um, prepare themselves for the following spring. So, so some woody plants actually need it quite cold in the winter. Uh-huh. Thank you. So how has climate change affected crops and plants in our gardens? So um, climate change is affecting our plants in two different ways. Um, one is sort of, as we might expect, is extending the growing season. So our plants are actually coming into uh, leaf and into flower earlier than they normally would. And they're also, as you've probably seen this year, they're hanging on to their leaves and they're not going dormant as quickly in the autumn. So the plants have actually got a longer growing season, um, which has some advantages to us because our roses will flower longer and our, our, some of our plants will be in bloom for longer. But the second aspect of climate change is that the weather gets a bit more unpredictable and it also gets more extreme, and that causes plants lots of problems because they're kind of guessing what's coming next, and if that isn't happening, that causes them a lot of stress. So they won't necessarily anticipate a frost in the spring if they've had a mild winter, for example. And then they, they, shoots, they flush their shoots out and then that's killed by the frost. And even things like our trees at the minute have still got leaves on them. And if we have winter storms, then they're like, like big sails. They'll blow the trees over because they haven't shed their leaves early enough. So that's, that's the problem for plants, really, um, is, is this sort of unpredictability and variability that we're going to get in the future. Oh, very interesting. Um, so what benefit is there to growing different plants and crops in our gardens? Are there scientific benefits for us? There's, there's benefits to us and there's benefits to the environment if we have a very green garden. So the more plants we can kind of put in there, um, there's some evidence that basically, well, we can grow our own fruit and veg, which is good because you basically have fresh fruit um, usually quite inexpensively. We can top up your diet quite well if you're keen on fruit and veg from your own plot. But even just working with plants, being outdoors, being in nature seems to provide lots of benefits. It relaxes us, it takes us away from the everyday 
stresses and strains of life, it's kind of distraction, which is a very positive thing. But it also encourages us to be creative. So we have little happy moments, little positive effects, which again are quite useful for protecting us against longer term mental health issues. So it provides resilience, I think, a bit of gardening, just as many things that are, that are good for you that are a distraction. Gardening um, for many people is a, is a source of joy and that provides some resilience. We've also got some research suggesting that actually the natural environment provides us with some direct health benefits. There's things we breathe in, there's certain chemicals we breathe in, there's certain microbial uh, communities that occur in nature that actually seem to be good at regulating our gut health and through our gut health, our mental health. So it seems to be very beneficial for, for most um, scenarios. And I think we shouldn't forget the environment. A green garden, one with lots of plants, also helps keep the city cool, helps um, reduce the effects of air pollution, um, and is very good at sort of capturing rainwater and slowing the rate of rainwater that goes into our, our sewer stream. So I'd encourage people to put as many plants in the garden as possible just for these sort of environmental aspects alone. Thank you. You you spoke about um, plants struggling, you know, to survive in the winter. So which plants can survive through our winters that people can also grow domestically? Do you have any more recommendations for those of our listeners that may be gardeners? Yeah, yeah. There's there's still plenty of plants that are doing okay. Um, I think in winter, which is obviously the the cold dark time of the year, you're looking for things that are looking to sort of cheer you up. So you're looking for colour. Um, you're looking for things that maybe have um, evergreen leaves that maintain interest during the winter. So things like our, our dogwoods, cornus is a, a plant that has nice bright coloured stems, different varieties of different colours. So you can have coral pink or lime green. So they stimulate a bit of interest in the winter. Um, we have things like hellebores, which come out just after the sort of new year. And again, range of flower colours, which are sort of pink and white and green. Quite, quite subtle in some ways, but very attractive. And then we shouldn't forget our spring bulbs, many of them which flower almost like late January onwards. So again, you can, you can have a bit of colour quite early on in that spring, just, just as you get sort of fed up with winter, there's a, there's a boost of colour comes along around about late January with February through crocuses and snowdrops and some of the other daffodils. So there is, if you search around, there's quite a lot of things you can use in terms of colour. And also, don't forget things like your cabbages and um, some of the veg crops will go through into, into early winter, so you can still harvest Brussels sprouts and cabbages and things for all those winter soups and uh, winter fest festivals of foods. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Cameron. It's been very insightful. I hope we can speak again in the future sometime. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was our interview with uh, Dr. Ross Cameron, uh, who, like we mentioned earlier, is um, uh, the Director of Research at the Department of Landscape Architecture, uh, University of Sheffield. Uh, Ross is uh, interested in understanding the benefits that gardening can bring, as well as how gardens and plants will adapt to climate change as well. Um, remember, if you would like to get involved in the discussions, the number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials and on Twitter, um, uh, on Twitter and Instagram, as well at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so there are several Islamic beliefs that provide humanity with uh, effective uh, solutions that link to today's environmental challenges. Um, the Holy Quran and the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, 
the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, provide a light on a sustainable development. And in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty commands mankind to avoid causing mischief and wasting resources. This is because it, it will lead to the degradation of environments uh, as the privilege of exploiting natural resources was given to the human race with the promise that these will not be wasted, damaged or destroyed. Allah the Almighty further states that all kinds of environmental damage like industrial pollution, environmental damage uh, and recklessness and mismanagement of natural resources is not appreciated by Allah. With this, Allah further states within the Holy Quran that uh, and neglect not thy lot in this world and do good to others as w- uh, as Allah has done good to thee and seek not to make mischief in the earth. Verily, Allah love, loves not those who make mischief. And this is chapter 28, verse 28 of the Holy Quran. And the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, clearly forbade destruction of trees and crops, even during war, due to the fact that they could be advant- uh, advantages to the enemy as well. Um, so we can see that even at that time in which uh, the enemy, or, or if we talk in, uh, if we don't talk about Islam, if we talk about any other um, uh, group of people, whether it be religious or, or worldly, um, they would, uh, they would, they, if they if they were to go to war, they would always uh, try to cut off uh, such means for for the enemy, so that they cannot make use of these things, and and that this would actually be advantages to them, so that uh, um, they they don't have any water, they don't have any uh, anything to eat, uh, and this will obviously make them uh, make them weaker, and and uh, the war would uh, hasten, uh, or the victory mm. rather would hasten for them. But uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that whenever you go to uh, a city or a place um, and you are forced to, to, to fight a defensive war then still you should uh, never damage uh, any of the trees, any of the wells, any of the crops, any of those things uh, because of of course this is something that God Almighty has blessed us with um, and, uh, and like I said uh, this the, we cannot um, go uh, make any kind of problems for such things as well um, and with that, we're going to be going to our last uh, segment for the day, the benefits of migration to the UK population. Migration is in the news again with negative media. And there are a lot of, um, sorry, there are a lot of positives uh, to migration, which will be covered in this topic. So, Saman, if you can kindly uh, let us uh, and our listeners know what is happening with migration in the UK. We shortly uh, touched on this um, in the roundup of the news as well as it, as it came in that. But but yeah, what, what are some of the, um, what's happening with migration here in the UK? Yeah, so the net migration has averaged around 250,000 people per year over the past few decades. The UK has seen a consistent flow of net migrants into the economy over the past 20 years. Uh, The 2016 Brexit decision resulted in a significant decline in the EU migration, but this was largely compensated by an increase in non-EU migration. Wide-ranging effects of this net migration have been observed in the UK's population, earnings, 
productivity, economic growth and tax collection. There are currently more than 100,000 asylum seekers who are awaiting a decision from the Home Office. And uh, around the world, 244 million people took advantage of immigration opportunities in 2015. A 41% increase in immigrants to new countries has occurred since 2000. Only 20 countries account for more than 30% of the world's immigrants, with the United States hosting 19% of them. The year ending 2020, people born outside of UK made up an estimated 14.5% of the UK population, and in the year ending June 2021, about half of the UK's foreign-born uh, population, 48% in total, were either in London, uh, 35%, uh, which is roughly 3 million people. And in the year um, to June 2022, there were 1.1 million visas granted to foreign nationals to come and live in the UK, by far the highest on record, in which 300,000 were for work and about 500,000 were for study, about 80,000 were for family and 230,000 for resettlement. And in the year ending June 2021, India, Poland and Pakistan were the top three countries of birth for the foreign-born, foreign accounting respectively for 9%, 7% and 5% of the total uh, in the UK. And more than 100,000 people have entered the country via illegal means in just under five years. Yeah, so the, the population of the UK is set to rise from its current record size, hmm. which is 67 million, uh, and uh, close to hitting 70 million over the next 10 to 15 years. As a, as a result of uh, such growth, huge amounts will have to spend uh, on the expansion of uh, school places, roads, rail, health, and other infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can see that, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, for, for the countries that you mentioned, um, there's a lot of uh, people who, who, who have um, uh, migrated, uh, isn't it? And we can see the benefits mm -hmm. of this. I, I was just um, uh, checking, I think there's a city in, in Italy who's actually paying 30,000 uh, to individuals for, for, actually, for, for them to, to come and move to that city. Um, so ov yeah. obviously th there's there's um, a, a people want this as well. There's so many benefits from this, uh, which we'll t uh, get into in in just a short while. But um, we 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 need to do whatever we can to make these uh, uh, make the migrants f uh, feel welcomed as well once they do come, because that is uh, one of the, the 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 underlying problems that we see from this. Um, but we'll speak about this in, in just a, just a little bit. Uh, for now, we do have with us on the line our uh, our guest in this for the, for this segment, Dr. Francesca Melanie, um, um, uh, who is a lecturer uh, in social justice at King's College London. Her research focuses on contemporary processes um, of migration and social exclusion. Exclusion, sorry. Uh, she is particularly interested in the interface between migration, policy, race, and age, and in the impact of legal status on the experiences of belonging and access to social services. She has a background in anthropology and over 15 years of experience conducting uh, ethno uh, ethnographic uh, research in a migration context in the UK, Canada and Italy. Francesca Melanie is a, a lecturer in social justice at King's College uh, London. 
Um, and uh, um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Uh, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's uh, it's an honor to have you on with us. Thank you. Um, we're, we're speaking about migration um, and uh, in particular what's, uh, what's happening here in the UK. And the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what is the main reason behind people migrating to the UK? Yeah, there are really many different reasons for for people to migrate, uh, and they often overlap with each other. You know, mobility is part of human history; is rooted in, um, you know, global economic, social um, connection and history. So, some people move to escape um, conflict, war, persecution, human rights violation. We see. Um, many people in, in recent year um, also um, escaping the effects of climate change and natural disasters. Um, other people move to work, to join family, to study, they move for love. Um, and most of all, you know, people um, move because they try to build um, projects, they um, try to make a life, they, are, they have hopes and aspirations. Um, and, and you know, they are in search of a better life. Um, I guess, you know, one other thing that to, to underline is that, um, you know, these, these reasons are complex and, and they do um, overlap, but policies assign migrants to rigid legal categories, right, um, which assigned um, people to different entitlement and rights. So, for instance, if I want to move to study, I need to get um, a study visa. Or, you know, to, to work, I need to get a work visa. Um, if you um, escape conflict, you need to prove that uh, you have, you know, you have the, the right to be entitlement, to, to be entitled and to have um, a refugee status. Um, and, and people move really in the world of um, borders, of restrictive policies, um, of uh, gates that they are um, increasingly closed. Um, and so there are really less entitlement um, and um, rights and, and access to social services, particularly in the UK, but we can really see it uh, at a global scale in, in really different countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And what impact did, did migration have on the UK population? Um, so migration has really different impacts on, um, you know, society in terms of um, economic, social, um, cultural impacts. Um, it is not just um, a one-way direction. You know, we, we often talk about, you know, the impact of um, migrants on society, uh, either the, the negative impacts, um, lots of times on the media and, and in policy discourses and sometimes the, the positive effects. But it's also, you know, a two-way direction. It's also um, society that impacts on, on migrants and, and migrants and society that they are not two separate things. Um, society is made of um, histories of migration, uh, is made of um, migrants. Um, and, yeah, the, the current discourse um, on migration often tends to focus on the negative um, impact on, on the UK uh, population and, and usually often in terms of, um, you know, invasion of a crisis, also like in terms of numbers. And we often forget that, uh, you know, people as, you know, migrants are human beings and, and people with different um, histories. 
Um, and again, here I, I would really stress that the impact of society also depends on the conditions that society allows these, these people, you know, to what, what kind of rights and entitlements and legal pathways to come um, here to the UK or in other countries. Um, and that's really a crucial part of, um, you know, the contribution that um, migrants can bring to society, the kind of life that they can, can, can build. Um, really, you know, a, a, a lot of times we forget and we overlook um, the policies and the condition that these these these, these people find um, in the country of arrival. And, and for instance, you know, we have seen um, recently, you know, in the news um, about you know the, the poor condition um, at Manston Centre, um, you know, for for asylum seekers, um, etc. Mm-hmm. And do you think the positives outweigh the negatives, or what? What impact does it have? What? What as a, as a nation, what can we gain from migration as a whole? You know, I think I, I would um, slightly reframe the question in, in the sense that um, we, you know, often the question that we um, ask about migration are quite polarized. You know. And like, you know, we often tend to polarize the discourse around migration as a matter of striking the benefits between the burdens and the benefits, um, the positives and the negatives. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, you know, we, we distinctate and we think as we as the nation and them are the migrants and, you know, sometimes um, yeah. they're really just talk and numbers, um, you know, that um, the nation can accept just if there is an economic gain or a social gain. And, and I think like lots of times the histories and the stories of um, the success stories that they are told about migration that do focus on, you know, on these extraordinary individuals with skills and talents that bring to society. But, you know, we, we do um, polarize in a sense. It's a discourse that is... You know, the, the, who is deserving? You know, the deserving migrant and um, other um, migrants and other people who are undeserving and unwanted. Um, and, and and so I think it's it's. I, I would like just to slightly reframe the question and, and really pose the question of you know who is considered um, deserving and undeserving and mm-hmm. and and why and and really what what are the conditions and and the policies that make some countries and um, some contexts really inhospitable um, and, and and really really difficult to to live in um, and so you know that there are many um, people um, you know refugees asylum seekers migrants who are not able to contribute um, at economic and social scale in society because they are not allowed the legal protection and the rights that they need. Um, to be able to build a life in the UK society on a on really on a day to day basis, you know, through community, family, politics, um, and and all these other means. Um, mm. So, get yeah, we can also reframe the question really, like you know, what is the cost for our society to put people, um, you know, in these inhospitable conditions when your life is on hold, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, lastly, what 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 impact does uh, migration have on the on the economy? 
Um, so certainly, you know, migration um, is vital for, for, for the economy. Um, you know, one example, for instance, you know, is the challenge, um, you know, in the NHS of retaining healthcare staff after Brexit, since the yes. NHS relies so heavily on, um, you know, European workers to make up for the um, shortage of um, national workforce. Um, in the NHS. And, you know, there is abundant research that shows um, that migrants contribute more in taxes, they do pay taxes more than they receive in benefits, you know, including social benefits and pensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the reason migrants are also um, a really um, crucial part of the workforce in many sectors, so um, you know, including agriculture, um, construction, domestic work, um, for instance, you know, hospitality, manufacturing, um, transport, um, and lots of times in these different sectors, they are also an exploitable workforce. Um, lots of times because their visa um, is. Um, heavily tied to the employer, to, you know, one single employer. Um, so, for instance, you know, that happens in agriculture or domestic work. Um, and so um, they, are, they are very subject to um, exploitation and um, they are in, in more vulnerable conditions. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 yeah, of course, here, again, like, you know, the media and, and policy discourse present different stories, right, about the negative effects of immigration on the tax and the welfare system. Uh, you know, often the story is um, people who are um, trying to steal money and trying to abuse the, the welfare system. This mm-hmm. is one of the main arguments made against immigration in, in lots of the medias and, and policies. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, and just uh, um, uh, lastly, um, when it comes to uh, migration, and we can see that it helps the uh, um, economy, and uh, there's so many other benefits that we can see from this as well. But when it when it comes to the local residents of the country, how should their uh, reaction be? Um, and uh, should they be welcoming or, I mean, sometimes we, we, we see um, them opposing uh, migration and other such things, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's quite interesting that you bring actually the local dimension um, because what we hear in the news is often um, quite detached from, from the local dimension and really the everyday life of um, people um, is often very abstract. You know, media um, focuses on the, the stories of, you know, boats arriving and, and numbers and, and really, like, it takes out the humanity of people. And I think, you know, I, there are many um, local initiatives and, in fact, you know, um, initiatives and also um, policies of, you know, local authorities, municipalities, institutions that they are much more welcoming than the national um, policies. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it is also, um, you know, because a, you know, migration is an inevitable part of um, society, you know, of our everyday life, of the fabric of our society. Um, and, and, you know, migrants have um, 
an agency, you know, to, to migrate and to make uh, the decisions um, for, for their lives. And, and, you know, B, because I think, you know, when we do um, come to the level of, um, you know, the, the localities, the everyday lives, we, um, we are faced with the, with the stories. You know, they're not just numbers or they're not just uh, a stock of people. Um, you know, they are human beings, they are our neighbors, um, you know, they are the people that, for instance, you know, add, um, they, they come to the, to, to, you know, to, to seek, um, I don't know, healthcare, um, you know, they uh, pick up the children at their school, um, you know, and, 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 and so I think there are lots of, um, yeah, solidarities and connections that they can be built um, at the local level, really. Yeah. Um, and these are, you know, one of the stories that they are often um, unheard, you know. Um, and that, and they, it's so important um, to focus on that and to remember that. Of course, of course. Um, uh, unfortunately, that is uh, all we have time for today. But thank you, uh, Dr. Francesca uh, Melanie, for, for being with us, for answering our questions, um, and sharing your insight into this topic. And we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Yeah, thanks so much to you. Have a wonderful day. Likewise. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Francesca Melanie, lecturer in social justice at King's College London. Her research focuses on contemporary processes of migration and social ex- uh, exclusion. Um, of course, uh, when it comes to this, His Holiness Mayala uh, strengthen his hand as Imam Sura Ahmed mentioned that governments need to make policies that establish and protect mutual respect, through which hurting the sentiments of others or causing them any type of harm should be outlawed. With regard to the immigrants, they must enter uh, with a willingness to, in- to integrate with the local people whilst locals should be ready to open their hearts and display tolerance. Um, and he also said that governments should make proper plans to ensure that countries work in harmony with each other and that at a domestic level, immigrants are helped to assimilate and integrate. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening in. We hope you guys have a wonderful day ahead as well. Here is the news. 